Is investment something that's always been on your mind, but you don't quite know how to get started on that journey? We are here to set you on the right course. Welcome to My Cashflow Academy's Investor's Corner with your host, Athena Paquette Cornier. We are all about getting out of the rat race through creating positive passive income through real estate investing. Here you'll hear from regular people just like you and the professionals who support us towards greater wealth. Learn before you earn, move from analysis to action, and find the right path to attaining the success that you've always dreamed of for yourself. Now, here's your host, Athena. Welcome to Investor's Corner. My name's Athena Paquette-Cormier, and I'm your host for today. Investor's Corner is a weekly interview with investors and the people who support them. This week, my guest is Manoj Shah. Thanks for joining us, Manoj. He's an intellectual property attorney and founder of the Fashion Law Group. So do you have an idea? Do you have a product, maybe an improvement to something like a product or a system? Well, these are your property or could be, and they need to be protected. So I wanted to invite Minaj to explain to us what exactly is intellectual property and how who needs it and how he can help us become better investors by knowing about intellectual property. So welcome, Minaj. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So why don't we just jump in? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, you know, how you came to be in the field of law and how long you've been practicing and just kind of your professional background. I started my legal career about 13 years ago. I started at a law firm here in downtown Los Angeles, um, practicing what's called toxic tort defense litigation. That's a mouthful to say that I was defending big corporations that were getting sued for allegedly exposing people to toxic chemicals like asbestos and benzene. And so, you know, I, I really got my, my legal training at that firm. It was great legal training. However, I just did not enjoy the practice area. Uh, it involved taking depositions of elderly people, um, drafting and arguing motions, and then going to trial. It was a litigation firm. So I did that for about five and a half years and then transitioned kind of abruptly into my own practice. I had been at the firm for five and a half years, like I said, and uh, while I was there, I needed a passion project to kind of take my mind away from uh, the day-to-day -day rigors of taking depositions of these people that were really ill. And mm -hmm. I went into streetwear, fashion, clothes. And so a buddy of mine, I had some discretionary income, so a buddy of mine and I decided to start a clothing company, streetwear company. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, and it was really spawned by the office manager at the law firm telling me I couldn't wear a T-shirt into the office. And so on the weekdays, I'd be sleeping under my desk, billing a ton of hours, making the firm a ton of money. And then on the weekends, I'd drive down to Covina and I'd be sitting with my buddy talking about how to protect my intellectual property, like my screen prints and my trademarks and my trade secrets, things of that nature. And so the more and more I did both, I just realized I, I did not have a passion for the type of law that I was practicing. Mm -hmm. um, I also realized that my clothing company wasn't going anywhere because I was only partially committed to it. I was kind of one foot in, one foot out. And the other realization that I had was that all my friends that were in the apparel industry would always ask me legal questions and say, hey, you're a lawyer. What do I do about this? And I would yeah. give legal advice. And the more and more I did that, I realized, okay, well, if the advice that I'm giving them is working, maybe there's a business here. And so after, after thinking about it and just realizing that I was not enjoying myself in the practice area that I was in, I decided to make a transition into representing 
essentially small business owners that were that, you know, because I had been going through it on my own, basically starting my company from scratch, figuring out how to protect my intellectual property, how to properly form my company, what type of contracts do I need, and figuring out my own sort of network of people that I could work with. To help. Mm. And that's the type of sort of service as, as outside general counsel that I provide to a lot of my clients. Yeah. So you were like your own guinea pig, right? <laughs> my own guinea pig. And, it, you know, it's something to be said about just learning on your own dime, you know? Mm-hmm. You, Definitely. You, I can stand in the shoes of a lot of my clients. Yeah. Well, and a lot of investors, that's how they they learn, right? It, until you have skin in the game, you really don't learn that fast. <laughs> or you learn a lot faster if you have your money in it, right? Absolutely. You yeah. Don't want- well, that's really interesting. So did you intend on specializing in the fashion thing? Well, or? The initial intent was to specialize in the streetwear industry. I'm not sure if you're familiar or your audience is familiar. No, what is that? So, like, if you're a fan of surf and street culture, so you, you, you know, you probably heard of a brand called Stussy. Um, oh, huh. I thought it was Stussy, but okay, Stussy. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, however you want to pronounce it. Or a brand called Rusty or, or some of these old school sort of surf brands, mm-hmm. which I grew up on. And, you know, as I was coming up, it, it transitioned more into streetwear culture, which, which is a lot of these brands on Fairfax that you see, like the hundreds and um, and dating ape and so on and so forth. And so I wanted to represent companies like that. That was the initial intent. But, you know, because one of the things that I realized at the time that I was starting was that, you know, because I had experience in that industry, I was seeing a lot of these brands being acquired by larger businesses with mm-hmm. They were either being acquired or they were being infused, invested in with a lot of money. And mm-hmm. so I would start asking some of my friends that were doing these M&A deals for these brands, mm-hmm. oh, like, how do I get involved in that? That seems like a more exciting area of law to be in. And mm-hmm. they said, have to move to New York. That's where all the apparel industry lawyers I started looking into it. And there was a program, like it was the first of its kind that was sort of training lawyers in fashion law so to speak and fashion law is like a huge umbrella uh like practice area that covers not just intellectual property but corporate transactional work transactional work employment work international regulations it was exciting to me to have that sort of under one roof and because i was already in the industry it just kind of made sense for me to transition in that area and i was also looking at it from a marketing and branding perspective for myself where there was not a lot of lawyers at that time in 2011 marketing and branding themselves as fashion lawyers Mm. while work that i do is akin to a lot of my peers i have a lot of clients in in the streetwear space in the apparel industry space and it spans from the local manufacturer or the screen printer or the sales rep it kind of runs the gamut or the stylist or the showroom Mm. and people that sort of come into my fold as just a result of, you know, hearing about what I do. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So maybe we can give people some basics about your, your field. Well, first of all, I have to say full disclosure, you did my trademark stuff for mortgage boot camp. So thank you very much. Yeah. I learned a lot going through that. And I was referred to you by a friend of mine who wrote a book about not self-defense, but how to protect yourself. She's a 33 year cop and just felt she wanted to share her her knowledge so so anyway you don't only do fashion those are both very different things that you helped us with right right i'm a business lawyer at the end of the day right Mm -hmm. i specialize in a very specific space but the those skill sets are they translate into all areas of law you should Mm -hmm. be a lawyer 
first and foremost in terms of like what it is you're doing, whether you're doing a corporate transaction, you're helping someone acquire a business, or you're helping someone protect their intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, the basics of my practice are, I'd say, fourfold. It's corporate transactional work, meaning I help people set up their businesses or acquire businesses or take it on investment. I help clients with transactional matters, negotiating licensing deals, endorsement opportunities, collaborations between different brands. Um, and then I also help protect intellectual property. That's one of my core practice areas, which whether it's, and it's, it's soft intellectual property work, meaning copyrights and trademarks. I kind of leave the patent related work to specialists. You have to be licensed by the patent bar to sort oh, of okay. things through the USPTO for patents. Mm-hmm. Not a patent lawyer. There's also some employment work that I do as it relates to drafting employment contracts or independent contractor agreements for clients that are just- Oh, that's interesting to know. Yeah. Because a lot of investors hire out or, yeah, hire out subcontractors. So that would be an area for you to help in. Okay. So why don't you tell us a little bit about um, what exactly is intellectual property and and what do do people mean by trademark and all these marks that you hear? What, What are all those things? Sure. So intellectual property are just, you know, creations of the mind that people are trying to protect for two reasons, for recognition and for financial benefit, right? So those, the types of creations that they're trying to protect fall into four categories. They fall into patents, copyrights, trademarks, and trade secrets, so to speak. So patents essentially protect inventions, right? You invent something and you want to exclude others from using what you've created, this invention, you want to have the rights to it for 20 years, you would try to patent it. You're protecting new and useful sort of things that have, you know, utility, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, Copyrights protect tangible forms of expression. So if you have an idea and you want, and and you put it into a specific medium like a book or a painting or a film, it protects those types of things and those last for a specific period of time. They expire depending on a few different reasons, right? They, okay. they expire at a point in time. Trademarks are names, logos, symbols, slogans that you're trying to protect. You're trying to sort of identify as specific to the brand that you have, whether it's a good or a service. Okay. So you Trade- could trademark the, the name that you're creating, right? Like Mortgage Bootcamp will say. But then you also protect the logo like Apple's logo or, you know, companies have logos and they're two separate things is what you're saying. So you you have a service mark and you have a trademark, right? Or a slogan mark. Those are three categories of types of marks. Okay. They can be in, in separate forms as well. They can be in a word mark form or mm-hmm. they can be in a design mark form. So those are two forms that each of those sort of categories that I just mentioned, trademark or service mark or slogan mark can be in. Okay. So do you have some examples of maybe what a trademark, what would you trademark versus what would you service mark? Do you have some? Sure. Like, so it really depends on what, so trademarks are split up into, into categories, right? There's 45 different categories, about oh. 35 different, <laughs> yeah, there's 35 different categories of goods and about 10 categories of services. So depending on what your business does, so if your business is in the business of selling things, you would categorize it based on one of the 35 categories of goods. And mm-hmm. if your business provides a service, you would choose from one of the 10 different categories of services, whichever one best fits. Or mm-hmm. you 
hybrid. You can you can register it as a good and as a service, depending mm -hmm. on your business. So a lot of apparel companies, they're registering it as a good because they're selling clothes, but they also run a retail store and they're providing service. Mm. So you'd actually truncate those and protect them separately. Yeah. You can choose different categories to protect at the time that you're applying for your trademark. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what can you not protect? Okay. So like the thing something that someone would come to you and say, Hey, I want to protect this. And I think you actually gave me a couple of things where you said, no, you can't protect that. So what would be examples of what you can't protect? So, so you want to make sure that your mark falls into three specific categories, um, how it would be classified. So there's arbitrary, fanciful, and suggestive, right? Like okay. those are the three sort of metrics, top three metrics for distinguishing between marks. And then the bottom two are descriptive or generic. Now, what they mean by generic is say Apple was a company that was just selling apples. Mm. And they wanted to protect the Apple logo because they were selling apples. They would not be able to do that because it speaks directly to what they are doing, right? Um, like you know, Kleenex. It lost its trademark because it's referred to specifically as a company that sells Kleenex. Mm. Like came so ubiquitous within the marketplace of like what tissue was that you know it lost. Yeah, we don't even say tissue too much anymore, right? Everyone says Kleenex. Yeah. So things like that, things are descriptive of exactly what you do. Like I couldn't register uh, the fashion law group, for example, the fashion law group, they said was you're, you're saying exactly what you do. You're, you're saying that you're a law firm that practices fashion law. So that's not protectable. It's generic and, and descriptive. Okay. There are certain times when something is descriptive, however, and it acquires what's called secondary meaning in the marketplace, meaning, mm -hmm. The consumers that are buying that good or that service, they readily identify your brand as that after like five years time, then you can, if you can show them secondary meaning, then you can get it past the, the hurdle of getting it registered. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Wow. And then so the descriptive. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. Okay. So can you give us like some examples of clients you've helped recently that, so have you helped any investors? Like I was curious about this the other day. Can you trademark or service mark like a process? Let's say a house flipper, for example, has a certain way of doing house flipping that no one does. Is there a way to protect that or is that too? You know, so meaning how would they let, let's let's uh, take a step back. How would that person that's flipping the homes and has created a process for flipping homes be sharing this idea, right? Because the mm -hmm. whole point and perspective is to like either gain recognition or financial gain, right? And so mm -hmm. keeping these ideas or processes to yourself for the most part. Now, mm -hmm. if you were to share it, how like that, that's where the issue of like, well, how do I get paid for sharing it? Right. Right. There are business patents like that, that patent specific processes. Mm -hmm. um, like the best way to protect the process is in my mind is a trade secret is basically having a, a, a an agreement through contract law that says that, I have this process for flipping homes. It's it's unique to me. I need you to sign this NDA so mm -hmm. that I share the process with you and that you don't go out and use it to benefit yourself versus benefit, mm -hmm. right? So right. I would say contract law um, and contract law to protect your trade secret and that this particular scenario where you're talking about the process of flipping homes would mm -hmm. fall trade secret because it's a process 
that's kind of specific to this person's business. It's not readily uh, ascertainable by someone in the general public. It's, it's right. created and is unique to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I see that as a problem with or kind of a risk for a lot of business owners. They figured out how to do something really well. And other people are failing at that something like house flipping is just an example. And it seems to me you'd want to protect that. But if you let's say you invite an assistant, right, you get help in the office and they're observing how you do things and they could actually, you know, copy your manual or copy your steps or whatever you want to call it. Right. They're they're observing everything in your office. So that person could then take that information and go work for someone else and basically take your great ideas, whatever they are, with them. Yeah. So th- that's you definitely when when you're bringing on and you have like processes that are unique to you, trade secrets with respect to your business. You mm-hmm. should definitely have an agreement in place, whether it's an independent contractor agreement or an employment agreement that embeds some of these trade secret provisions within the contract that says that, you know, as soon as your contract is terminated, you have to you know, return all materials back to the office, you know, your all copies of that material. The one problem with respect to protecting trade secrets once you disclose them is the residual knowledge that these employees or independent contractors have just by, yeah. you know, working on the, on the project. I deal with this for some of my software engineers that are working at startups, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, they have this skill set that's unique to them. They've been trained on it and then they go into a startup and then the information that they already have gets mixed with the information that they're given to build this new cool software, mm-hmm. but, you know, mm-hmm. in those types of contracts, we put, you know, residual rights clauses, which allow them to kind of move forward with the knowledge that they already had or, or have gained through the process of working with that particular employer. It's, it, it can be challenging, right? Because, you know, it's because yeah. it's in their head now, right? How do you get rid of that? You can't. It's yeah. assimilated. And so then how do you prove that they learned it with you? So, yeah, I'm just thinking. Well, that's why there's, you know, timelines associated with everything should be done in writing, at least mm-hmm. with respect to communication so that you can track it. You know, I shared this code with this developer at this time, or I shared this information with mm-hmm. this, this time or this client book with them. He could have only or she could have only known them through their work here with the company, right? A lot lot of those trade secrets come down to client lists, customer lists, things like that as well. Yeah. So can you address that? So that's another area that's really touchy for people is their client list, right? Who really owns the client list, right? I see this with realtors when their assistants leave to I'm not picking on assistance, but, you know, that's usually how you get in, right? <laughs> you, you discover things that way. So how do you protect your client list from from someone else, you know from that, them sharing it even? Yeah, so that, that's where it really comes down to the, the watertight contract that you sign with them when you bring them on. If mm. you think your client list is worth something, you make sure that they sign a trade secrets and a confidentiality provision within the employment or independent contractor agreement. You know, these things are... I mean, they're some of the most heavily litigated things in the state of California. Trade mm-hmm. secret litigation is like booming, you know, yeah. because that's an end around to non-competes and, and non-solicit provisions, which are sort of uh, looked at with, you know, um, a lot of scrutiny when it comes to, you know, the courts. They don't they don't really honor non-competes or non-solicits. Oh, really? Um, and yeah. so many people are forced to sign those. Yeah, you know, non-competes are, are viewed as um, a restraint against, like, trade. 
and mm -hmm. courts courts look down on them. So the end around that was trade secrets. And you mm -hmm. have to sign this like really overly broad trade secrets provision that prevents them from using some of the knowledge that they gain while on the job. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's tricky, right? So do you have an example of like a service mark? Some Someone who, I don't know if you deal with a lot of investors, but I try and frame it that way. So is there an example of someone you've helped that had a service mark recently? Well, I helped mortgage bootcamp. Yeah, you did. <laughs> you did. Bootcamp <laughs> is, you know, they provided a finance, you provide financial support to, you know, people that are going through the mortgage process, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you try to teach them and educate them on, mm -hmm. you know, the processes associated with your financial service. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, are you looking for something a little bit more specific? Yeah, more specific or, or like, let, let's talk about websites because that's kind of a, a big thing right now. A lot of people, their whole business is, driven on their website, right? So anyone can look at their website and see stuff and replicate it. So how would someone who's building a website protect their their content even, right? They're, all their contents there, all their, like a website has a lot of stuff, videos, actual content, the look of it, like how, how would you protect someone's website from being, you know, pillaged? So the, the, the content, the content from a website very difficult because it's streamed over the internet it's yeah it's, i mean look i think you know there, there are certain things you can protect and there are certain things you can't protect and maybe through copyright law you can protect the copy associated with the information you know uh that the content that's uploaded onto the website you know the look and feel maybe through trade dress which is like the design or shape of something or the color scheme of something can be utilized to protect how a, a website is even organized, but that becomes very, very expensive and not, not unless the website that same to you and they've copied your your copy word for word. Mm -hmm. um, and and you should also know that the moment that you put something into the stream of commerce, mm -hmm. you, it has what's called common law copyright protection. Okay, so you don't have to do a registration. They're just different. Um, penalties that you can get as a result of something that's not registered as a copyright. They, you know, you can get attorney's fees and things of that nature when you register a copyright. So if you wanna, if you wanna protect the copy of your website, register mm -hmm. as as something that's in the literary realm, right? If you wanna protect mm -hmm. photographs, <laughs> excuse me, copyright the photographs. So how do you do that? Can you explain to us how someone would take, like, my sister does a lot of photography, right? So if she, you know, wanted to protect her pictures, they're pictures of anything anyone can take pictures of, but they're her pictures. They're unique to her, right? So how, what step would she go through, say she takes a picture today, what would she do next? Well, it's, it's not a difficult process, actually. You just have to log oh. on to the copyright.gov, you know, website, and there's a form that you fill out. And, you know, she should talk to a lawyer, someone like myself, before filling it out if she wants a consult. And we can kind of walk you through the, the boxes to check and, and how to kind of upload the images. But it's really that straightforward. It's filling mm -hmm. out the form filed, uh, making sure that you list the appropriate parties. If she's not the one that, that took the photograph, she's also have, she also has to list the actual photographer, including herself, the, you know, all this information that's kind of required when you're filing, I can just walk them through it. Uh, it's not very mm -hmm. difficult. Hour, hour, hour. Okay. 
And so the same would apply to the like the content, right? So let's say I wrote the content that then goes onto my website. So I have that in a Word document. What would I do with that Word document? Same thing or? Yeah, it would be uploaded as a specimen. So that's yeah. pretty easy, right? It's very straightforward. Mm-hmm. So what do we have next? And I just wanted to remind people if they want to ask questions to feel free to, you know, put it in the uh, chat box there. I don't see any so far. Okay. Okay, so my next question is, um, you know, so let's say you did one of these trademarks or service marks and you find out someone, you know, took your stuff. <laughs> what do you do next? Well, it, that becomes a, a you know, and I, and I deal with this stuff all the time. It becomes a question of fact, right? If, if someone really did take your stuff and they're just um, knocking you off, so to speak, then, you know, you know, you, you, you know it when you see it and you kind of send them a letter saying, hey, knock this off. Stop, otherwise this is what's going to happen right mm -hmm. and you you typically start with the letter there are instances though when you get a letter right mm -hmm. yeah like I have a client that got a letter saying that they're you know because they my client was trying to register a trademark and this was before I got involved but there was another company that had uh, been in the marketplace but they hadn't filed uh, a registration uh, an application oh. for, for a trademark and so they were claiming that they were first to market and that they had been selling across the United States and they had common law rights, which trumped my client's rights. So then it became an issue of like, okay, well, let's investigate. Like, let's see when you guys went to market versus when they went to market. And it, it turned out based on our investigation that my clients had improperly listed a, uh, the incorrect date of first use. And so we were able to combat their letter by saying, hey, we actually came first. So our rights usurp your rights. And, oh, and, wow. and then it becomes this, okay, well, let's settle this out because we don't want to litigate, right? right? And there are instances where, you know, um, parties just can't agree as to who came first. They don't believe the, the, the facts before them. And then those issues get litigated and it's very, very expensive to litigate them. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they can also start outside of the context of, you know, uh, this uh, a civil lawsuit, but they can they can even start in the registration process where someone can file a petition to have your trademark canceled, or they can oppose your application. All types of like ways to prevent people from moving forward with, you know, a mark that they think is theirs or they have a right to. So when you uh, register to want this mark, people can object, and how long do they have to object? Like, is there a time? Yeah. So essentially, essentially, what happens is you file, you file the trademark. It gets assigned to an examiner. It takes about three months to get assigned to someone, and then once it gets assigned, they do their research, looking at the database of registered marks, and see if there's anything out in the database that's confusingly similar to yours. And if mm -hmm. there, then they'll issue what's called an office action, and you're going to have to clarify why it's not, you know, the same. Like yeah. I have I was trying to register the mark Crystal Bar, and they came back with uh, an office action that said that the mark Gem Bar was the same thing, and I and I was just baffled. And then we had to get into the nuances of why a crystal and a gem were different. <laughs> ridiculous. Um, but when you prove the examiner that there's nothing out there that's you know that you're 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 stepping on anybody's toes, for, for lack of a better word. Um, there's nothing confusingly similar in the database. Then they'll um, issue uh, what's called like a notice of allowance if you 
if you filed uh, an intent to use mark, mm -hmm. right? Meaning at that time you get your notice of allowance, you have six months to um, provide specimens showing the mark in use in commerce, or it'll um, it'll be pushed through to publication automatically if you filed an in use mark, right? If they've not found anything confusingly similar to to oppose your registration. And so once once it gets to the publication period, the the it gets published in the Gazette, and the party it, the Gazette gets sort of circulated, and, and people have thirty days to oppose the oppose the mark. Once once it passes the thirty day threshold, your mark if no one opposes it, and it rarely ever gets opposed once it gets to publication, mm. uh, you it, it, the mark will get registered within eleven eleven weeks. Mm -hmm. So from start to finish, if there's no big deal challenges, then how how much time was that? Six, five months, six months? Oh, uh, it's a little bit longer. Um, I don't know if you remember from our experience. It's it, oh. it between seven and thirteen months. Okay. It's, no, the the examiner's office is actually not. There's not just one sort of office that's handling all of these. The government sort of has contracts with a lot of different law firms to prosecute these registrations as they come in. Kind of do this on their off time, I suppose. Oh. Uh, yeah, so it's just a slow, and like it's a slow process that is. It needs to be fixed, and it needs to be um, a little bit quicker. But you know, it is what it is. Uh huh. But that's a little frustrating if someone's trying to start a business and they've got to wait that long. But you don't want to start putting stuff out like that if you're not going to get approved, right? The bureaucracy of the government is very frustrating. I would agree with you. And it's, it, it's yeah, it does, it does slow up the process of putting out content and, and building your business up when mm -hmm. you're nervous that maybe in 13 months you're going to have to train, change the entire name of your company. Right. Something out there. Especially that's, if you've got print, you know, all that stuff is costly, right? And that's sort of where the, the intellectual property lawyers and people like myself come into play, where we kind of say, well, look, this is what's out here. Um, these are the risks that you have in moving forward. It's better to be apprised of those risks moving forward uh -huh. because you are investing your time and money into it. And some people fall in love with their, their brand name, and it's really hard to come off of that mm -hmm. when you're so to pot committed, so to speak, or you put all your eggs in this basket and, and mm -hmm. green printed this logo on all of your shirts and made hang tags out of it, like things that I see all the time. And I'm like, you're like, uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. It, 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 people do fall in love with their, you know, their logo or their. I mean, you know, you're. It's like your baby. You're invested in it, right? So, and, and that's why that's why it's so important to make sure that you you fall in love in a in a sort of educated way, you know, because you got you have to think about it, right? If I'm going to invest all of my time, energy, and effort into this brand, this brand name. You want to make sure that you have the right to own it, right? The, the the trademarking process is beneficial in two ways. One, it's for like you gaining protection of, of a mark that you really love, but also just knowing what else is out there. You know, you may you may be in love with it and think everything is fine, but you know, you hire the lawyer to research and analyze what else is out there, and you come to find there's this other brand that hasn't filed anything, but is in the marketplace. And is in a in a similar market space as you. That's just a, a headache that you're going to have to be ready for later on down the line. And and I will say that copyright, trademark, and patent litigation are expensive. Yeah, they're like how expensive? I you know fifty thousand dollars and up. 
Wow. So you better be really convinced if you're going to do that, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so I think I'm just one second. Sorry. Okay. No problem. Um, we, we can talk and, and, uh, and chat while I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. So I had a, a, another question. Um, so can someone trademark their own name? They can. But, you know, when when you're trying to trademark your own name, um, let's start with, um, yeah, you know, you, you can trademark your own name. People start clothing lines based on their own name all the right. time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's not a problem. You just have to sign a, a form, a consent form, basically attesting to the fact that this is you and you're a real person and you're trying to register the mark in this particular category. When it comes to your surname, however, like if you just wanted to register your last name, uh-huh. uh, who's a famous person with a brand that just has their last name? Not coming to my head right now, but you, like you have- Gucci? Is Gucci their own name? Like Gucci, right? Like it, it's, it's someone, it's a Versace, is someone's surname, right? Yeah. Um, that would need to acquire secondary meaning in the marketplace. So it need to be kind of known in the marketplace that Versace was kind of the, you know, Gianni Versace or, you know, it would have to, it would have to be in the marketplace for five years to acquire a certain level of like fame to be protected. Okay. Okay. So it's possible. So another question that I have is, you know, a few, a couple of people asked me, can you trademark like letters and numbers? So, like B2B is business to business, right? Could you trademark B2B or something like that? Yeah, I, I, I don't, I mean, it just depends on the category that you're trying to register in. Like if you're offering business services and you want to be, you want to be called B2B, probably not. It's probably too generic or okay. descriptive of the service that you're providing. Um, and it would, it, I'd have to look at it in context. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some people ask me about, you know, yeah. Could you do letters and numbers or, you know, and I thought, oh, that's a great question. You can't, um, you can't protect um, typefaces, right? Like um, you want to, you want to own a specific font. You can't necessarily do that, right? Okay. Uh, Because fonts have a a utilitarian purpose associated with them and they kind of, um, they don't want all kinds of crazy litigation going on as a result of someone trying to protect their font. But you can, you know, you can be protected from a, in a sense, from a common law perspective, if it's very distinctive and artistic, um, if the font is, you know, has different characteristics that can be protectable within them. Mm-hmm. Like some famous people, I think, might want to protect their, like, their initials or their signature. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, signature as, as a part of your logo. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. Okay. So if you think of investors, can you think of, Anything that an investor would need to do a mark on. What type of investor? Um, so let's say uh, like a real estate investor. Um, and he's investing through his company. He uh-huh. has a company. He created company. Okay, sure. Okay, so if if your investor has created a company and he's offering services on investment services under that company, he mm-hmm. would probably go out or want to go out and register a service mark associated with his business. Okay. We want to protect the copy or the information that he shares on his website. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's sharing um, some pie charts that he's come up with about investing. Mm-hmm. We want to protect those. He, his photographs, like anything any other type of entrepreneur would want to protect in information 
that they're sharing publicly and they mm -hmm. want to derive a benefit from is protectable via copyrighted trademark. Mm -hmm. And then what did you say protecting your process was again? Like if someone has a, a process or a way of attracting investors or investing? Yeah, so if you have a, a process that is unique to your business, mm -hmm. um, before you share it, um, depending on who you share it with, make sure you, if, if it's protectable via patent uh, law, where, where there's a, a business-oriented like patent associated with that, um, you want to you explore that, maybe speaking to a patent lawyer. But for the most part, you're going to protect processes and patterns and client lists and formulas, mm -hmm. things of that nature, through trade secrets. Okay. You Okay. Sure, and you're going to want to embed those trade secrets provisions into the contracts that you have with parties that you're sharing information with. Mm. Okay. Okay. Well, that's all the questions I had. I don't see any questions from our viewers. So, so is there any, so you're here in California. I think we said Los Angeles. I think we mentioned that, right? I'm here in California, but the type of, the type of work that I do, it's very generalized work. So mm -hmm. we can, you know, some of the stuff becomes a little bit more nuanced and, um, you know, we can, we can dig into those details maybe at a, uh, on a later sort of Facebook session, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, things like trademarks, things like copyrights, entity formations, that those are things that we can kind of handle from California, but kind of span the entire country. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I so do if have I have a guy in Florida, he can contact you here to do his copyright stuff or whatever. Absolutely. And I also have uh, an of counsel in, in New York that works with me. So, okay. you know, we, we, we do have a little bit of reach and we're growing and expanding. Okay, neat. That's awesome. Okay, so do you have any parting, parting words for us, Manoj? I just say that if you're starting a business, it's important that you take the necessary steps to protect your intellectual property from the perspective of if you want to derive a financial benefit from it, it's good to have your I's dotted and T's crossed. Whether that means you you require a patent, you require copyright work, or you require trademarks, or you require a contract that embeds certain trade secret provisions, I'd say take those necessary steps because um, walking it backwards, it becomes a lot more difficult to hold on to those ideas so that you can actually gain a benefit from them. The time time again, you know, I have clients that are like, well, I didn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't planning on just giving it to them. They were just going to use it for my, for my business and helping me out. And then they're off using, you know, this person's list or they're created their own trademark that kind of looks similar to, you know, oh, what they wow. created. Um, you know, and there are mechanisms for fighting that stuff, but that fight is expensive. I just want to, and, and beyond that, like with respect to copyrights, registering your copyright can allow you to get additional penalties against someone because once you registered it, it's um, it's it's viewed as having put people on notice that mm. registration exists, and and so it allows these uh, attorneys that are filing copyright litigation claims, copyright infringement claims, to say, hey, well, I'm entitled to my attorney's fees for having to bring this claim. They should have been on notice, mm. you know, as opposed to being limited to, you know, whatever the court has the discretion to award you. Mm -hmm. So right. I love the idea that um, you can do some pre-research, right? Let's say I want to register something. 
you'll research to see how difficult or what roadblocks we're going to run into, right? The goal of registering, at least for, for trademarks, is twofold. One, it's just, you know, protecting your trademark, right? But two, also knowing what is out there. Like, let's figure it out and let's have a really honest discussion about, you know, wh what's going to happen in the future, right? Right now, you may love this mark, but you may not love it in six months when someone is sending you a cease and desist letter, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's the challenge, right? Because you never know what's going to happen. And, and our job is, as lawyers is to kind of apprise you of what could happen. They don't necessarily happen all the time, and people understand that these things are expensive, and they don't want to go into litigation, but you never know. There are some people out there that are just very, very litigious. Like, you know, I, we went through this process with one of my clients where I had done the research, everything was fine, and the USPTO even even issued a publication of our mark because they didn't find anything confusingly similar in the database. Well, another brand came back, and the brand that we had was two words. The brand that they had was one word, and one of the words was identical. And they were claiming that we uh, were diluting their mark and that we were confusingly similar to their mark. This particular client was selling women's ball gowns, like high, high-end women's ball gowns, 10000 and the company that was suing us was selling jeans, like really crappy jeans. Mm -hmm. uh, like, uh, you know, huh. couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't get it. I was like, we, there's no way that people could look at this in the marketplace. And be confused. Market. Yeah, and be confused. I have no idea how you're getting to that point, but they pushed it. And my client just didn't want to fight it. He was tired. And, and it got wow. expensive to him, and, and he just gave up and said, I'm, I'm done. Like, Leave me alone. I don't want to have to deal with this anymore. And and it, it gets like that. Litigation like that, it, litigation in any sense is always like that. It'll just wear you down. Mm -hmm. I've been in litigation for four and a half years now. They just filed for bankruptcy. But we're still plugging away at them every day. Like it doesn't go away. You yeah. Know? After my client has run out of money, out of principle, we are yeah. them because They're still it, fighting for it. Yeah, it's, it's wrong. Wow. It's wrong. So I have a suspicion that people might be watching and going, well, I think I might, I think I should have registered this. Now I'm thinking I should protect this or maybe I should check. So should people just call you or email you and say, hey, this is what I like, just confess, right? Time to confess. I've been doing this and am I okay or not? You know, should they just throw it out there and see what you say? I'd say emailing is better than calling. Yeah. I'm always on my email. Sometimes I don't pick up my phone when their unrecognized numbers. So sure. uh, me too. <laughs> so you know, send me an email um, with your you know your name and your all, all the information that that's sort of pertinent to the issue that you're facing, and someone from my office will get back to you. My email address is just the letter M at the Fashion Law Group, and that's uh, very easy. Very easy, very straightforward. That's what I wanted. My name is Manoj, and then you know I'm in the process of redoing my website too. So, oh, cool. uh, and, and the website is just the fashionlawgroup.com. Uh, and, and soon enough, you'll be able to see the other sort of members of my team and, and have email addresses for them too. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Manoj. It was really cool to hear all about this. And hopefully we've helped people, especially investors, know a little bit more than they did before and hopefully protect what they are out there building, right? Yeah. Cool. So thank you for joining okay. me. 
So next week, we're going to have attorney Jane Euler, who will talk to us about protecting your assets before marriage and in the event, event of a divorce. I know, super exciting, right? <laughs> so please join me also for Mortgage Mondays. This Monday, I'll be talking about how to avoid or get rid of PMI when you're buying a house. There's four ways, and I'm going to share all four. And if you want to join our mailing list, you just have to text 444-999. And in the message box, you're going to type in your email address and keyword mortgage fund. So thank you all for joining me. Thank you again, Manoj. It was really a pleasure talking with you tonight. You're very welcome. Have a good day. You too. Bye now. This has been another episode of My Cashflow Academy's Investor's Corner with your host, Athena Paquette Cornier. We wish you all the success you deserve as you use what you've learned here out in the real world. Check out the blog post for this episode, along with many more helpful resources at mycashflowacademy.com.